5. Galatians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I do want to give you an update on our offering of praise. Uh, you'll remember that last week uh, our total was 53,500 approximately, and uh, just over 5,000 more dollars have come in this week. So we are at about 58,500 uh, for that offering of praise. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord. So good. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. I want to begin by reading those and praying together. <clears throat> if you're using a pew Bible and are having trouble finding it, that's on page 975 of the pew Bible. Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15. This is what the Spirit says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another." Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to Your Word and we confess that it has the final word on all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so we pray that by Your Spirit You will teach us, speak to us, stir in us <clears throat> encouragement, conviction, and the will to obey what You say in Your Word for Your glory, for our good. We pray that You will strengthen Your church as Your Word is heard. We pray, God, I pray that You will Protect my lips from speaking wrongly about these words that you have given to us. Help us to know the truth, love the truth, and live according to the truth. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Amen. Last week we began a study that we're calling One Anothering, uh, the, looking at how God calls us to live as a church. And through this series we're going to look at several One Another commands in the New Testament, beginning with this one, serve one another. Now, as you read the New Testament, it is very clear that we are to serve. Uh, we are to serve the Lord. So that, in fact, as Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, one way that he describes their coming to faith in Jesus is to say how they turn to God from idols to serve the living God, to serve the living and true God. 
So actually, coming to Christ awakens service to God. We were serving any number of other things, primarily ourselves, but all of these different things we were chasing after. And when God rescues us from our sin, He makes us to serve Him. He gives us hearts to serve Him. And so that's why in Romans 12, Paul calls uh, us, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. If you're a Christian, you're meant to serve the Lord. He is the aim of life. But not only are we to serve the Lord, that service is to show itself in how we serve one another. So Jesus says in Matthew 20, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So, you want to be a great Christian? Become a slave. There's your, there's, hello, my name is your slave. All right? Nobody's writing a popular Christian song that's going to be played on the radio that says, hello, my name is slave. And yet, this is one of Paul's favorite titles for himself. The same is true in 1 Peter chapter 4, where Peter writes that as each has been given a gift, let him use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The gifts that you have, whatever they are, are not meant for you. They are not meant primarily for your benefit. They're not primarily meant to give you a career. They're primarily meant for the glory of God and the good of other people. So as you think about it, this doesn't just mean, this isn't just talking about teaching. This is about whatever gifts you may have. They're just not meant for you. They're meant for other people. Our lives are not our own. They've been bought with a price. We're to serve one another. And here in Galatians 5, we see it again. Paul speaks of serving one another. And here is what I take to be the point of this little paragraph, which is that Christ sets us free to serve one another, not to serve ourselves. Christ sets us free to serve one another, not to serve ourselves. So first, just consider that Christ sets us free. That's what the first phrase in verse 13 says, for you were called to freedom. That calling, by the way, is not a special calling given to some people who are Christians. This calling is the same kind of calling we saw last week, the calling to which we've been called. That call is the call to Jesus Christ. It is that wonderful, glorious call that awakens us out of the grave of our sin and brings us into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you've been called in that way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Paul says you were called to freedom. But what does it mean to have freedom? What does he mean? Well, in order to understand what he means by freedom, we have to think about how the Bible speaks about what, what we were like before we were called, all right? 
So there's actually a number of ways that the Bible speaks about this. It speaks about our being dead in sin or lost or hopeless or blind or unrighteous or ungodly, enemies of God, children of the devil, sinners. All kinds of labels are put on who we were before Christ saved us. But the one relevant to this freedom is a different word. The Bible says of those who are not believers in Jesus, those who are not Christians, that they are under, under, well, that begs the, I mean, uh, meaning under authority, all right? So, uh, at your job, it's helpful to know whose authority you're under, right? It's helpful to know who you report to, who you're going to sit down with them at the end of the year and have the review, right? It's helpful to know uh, from whom you get authorization for this or that. All those things are helpful, but that's not this kind of under. It's not, it's, it's not kind of, it could be positive, could be negative. This is a very negative under. It's the way that we speak about being under someone's thumb, all right? That we are dominated by something outside of ourselves, that we can't do anything about it, that we are stuck, that we are trapped. You see, the non-Christian is under. All of us were once under. Some of us are still under. But what exactly are we under? Well, we don't even have to go outside of the letter to the Galatians to see what we are under. Paul says that we are under the law. We were under the law. Now, the law itself is good and righteous. It reflects God's character. It teaches how we ought to live. But being under the law, under that system, is something that is not desirable in, in, in the letter to the Galatians. Look at verse 23 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Now, just reading the English, <laughs> if I tell you that you are held captive by something, do you automatically have positive overtones going through your mind? Oh, how wonderful, I'm held captive. No. You're held captive, he says, un under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our Guardian. That word guardian uh, is the word for one who would actually look over, watch out for a young child. It would typically be a servant, a slave, who would watch over the master's children, and they would make sure they keep in line, that they learn their lessons, all these things. And typically, they were actually quite harsh, quite harsh. So if you have in your mind like uh, the, the stereotypical nun from a Catholic school, all right, can you see her in your mind? Can you see her with her ruler, making her demands, and when the demands aren't met, wrapping that student? That's what the law does. The law makes demands, and the law sets out the punishment. And that is the system that we are under. To change the metaphor just a bit, well, quite a bit, the law is not actually a picket, nice picket fence that protects us. It is a 10-foot high cinder block wall with razor blades on the top that confines us in a system we cannot beat and we cannot escape. 
That's what the, the law was never meant to save us. Never. It was never meant to be a means by which we attained status before God. It's not that in the Old Testament they had the law and they earned their salvation, but now in the New Testament we don't earn it. That's not the case at all. The very giving of the law tells us that because it was after God had redeemed His people from Egypt that He says, I am the Lord. I brought you out of Egypt. Here is my law. In other words, here is how you live as people who've been redeemed by the Lord. But they can't do it. They can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. In Galatians 2, Paul says, no one will be justified by works of the law. No matter how many works of the law we pile up, we can't do it. But we're under it. Why can't we do it? Well, apart from the purpose of the law, we're un- we're, we can't do it because of the second thing that we're under. We are under sin. Under sin. Sin's thumb is on us. We are all sinners. But it's not just that we make mistakes or that we sometimes sin. The Bible says that we are enslaved to sin. We can't escape it. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Or in the words of Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and Misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is every single one of us in the condition in which we are born. We are under sin. So when the law makes its demand of righteousness, no matter how hard we try, we can't produce righteousness. In fact, Isaiah says that all our righteous deeds are actually filthy rags. Even when we do relatively good stuff, and people who don't know Jesus do relatively good stuff. But that relatively good stuff is very much filthy rags. Why? Because those things are not done for the glory of God. Non-believers, who, those who don't know Jesus, who do relatively good things, may do it only for the benefit of the other person, only to make themselves feel good, only to be seen as philanthropic in the eyes of other people. But you see, the Bible doesn't tell us whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all for the good of others. Do it all to feel better. Do it all to have a good reputation. No, 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 no. We do it all first and foremost for the glory of God. But we don't do that naturally. We are under the law. We are under sin. And because of that, the third thing we're under, a curse. 
Look at Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law makes its demands. We cannot meet them, so we are accountable to the lawgiver himself, to God. We are liable to the judgment that sin deserves, the eternal, slow-burning wrath of God. You see what? Do you see the predicament that we're in? Do you see the predicament in humanity? It gets very confusing when those around us try to tell us what is the greatest problem facing humanity today. The greatest problem facing humanity today is that it is under the law, under sin, and under a curse. That is the greatest problem facing humanity. And actually, to be more specific, the greatest problem facing humanity isn't that we sin here. The greatest problem facing humanity is that we will answer for that sin. That is the greatest problem that will take place in any person's existence. That's why sin is worse than suffering. In this life, sin is worse than suffering. It is the single greatest problem that faces every single person. It's the single greatest problem that faces every person in this room. We're under the law, we're under sin, we're under a curse, we're trapped, we're imprisoned, and there's no tunneling our way out. There's no secret compartment in this prison where we can find a little spoon and dig away at the wall and eventually get through it. No, no. There's no getting out. But Paul begins chapter 5 with these amazing words. For freedom, Christ has set us free. You see, Jesus met every demand of the law. Galatians 4 says He was born under the law, but He kept the law perfectly, met every single one of its demands by His active obedience. He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Sin's thumb couldn't get on Jesus. And He went to the cross not bearing His own sin, but bearing ours. And Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us. He liberated us. He took those of us who are under the law, under sin, and under the curse, and He set us free. Isn't that glorious? Set free. In fact, in Romans 6, He says we're actually, you know all those other unders that were so terrible, they were they were like, they were, they were terrorist dictators. Well, now you're under grace. In another place in Romans, he says, we have access into this grace in which we stand. You see, under sin, under the law, under the curse, we are crushed, we are cast down. But in grace, under grace, we stand. 
We stand. And when we really reflect on that, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Na- the Nazarene and wonder how, how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. We're under grace, not under the law. We're credited with His righteousness and not our sin. There's been an exchange, our sin for Christ's righteousness. And we are blessed with God by every, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And He, we are no longer doomed to a curse. Because He was cursed for us. He became a curse for us. Friend, are you still under the law? Are you still thinking that you can be as obedient as possible and win God's favor? Are you still under sin? Are you wondering why its grip won't loosen? Why that habit that hurts you and hurts others so often just won't let go? Do you know that you'll stand before the God who holds blessing and cursing in His hand? Do you know in your soul when you lay your head on your pillow at night and you close your eyes, do you know that the only thing that you should rightfully get at that place is the curse? Friend, you can be free today. You can be free right now. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. Plead with Him for mercy. Call everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Call on Him in this way. Jesus Christ is Lord and I believe that God raised Him from the dead and He died taking my sin and my punishment. Call on Him. You will be saved. Christ has set us free. If that's you, I'm telling you, there is nothing I or anybody else who belongs to this church would love more than to sit around and talk with you about what it means to believe in Jesus and follow Him. So you just tap any old person on the way out and you say, can we talk about this? Because they would love to. Or get their attention from six feet away and say, hey, can we talk about this? That's fine. Christ sets us free. But that is foundational. We go on. We haven't even gotten to serving anybody yet. But we can't actually until we get that right. That's the logic in Paul's mind. Second thing, Christ sets us free not to serve ourselves not to serve ourselves. We have to understand Christian freedom rightly. And in verses 1 to 15, Paul helps us by dealing with two wrong responses. I'll only mention one because the second one is the one that that we really deal with in this paragraph. But the first wrong response to Christian freedom is legalism. Okay? And that's what Paul deals with beginning in verse 2 all the way through verse 12. This response basically says, hey, there really is no such thing as Christian freedom. Freedom isn't really freedom. We have to do more than simply believe. We are bound to do things in the law along with believe in Jesus in order to be right with God. The specific thing in Galatia was those coming along saying, you must be circumcised. 
And Paul so strongly rebukes this. Look at verse 12, what he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. But the second wrong response, so, so don't go adding obedience to the law to faith, thinking you must obey the law to be right with God. No, no, no. Jesus Christ has obeyed the law completely and fully for you so that your obedience is in imitation to Him and to glorify the one who has obeyed for you. It is not so that you can kind of pile on, well, no, you know, Jesus, I know you have perfect obedience and I've been credited with that, but I really need to add some of my own obedience to really put it over the top. Friends, we cannot increase status from perfect righteousness. The second problem that Paul deals with is actually license. So not legalism, but license. The idea that for the Christian, now that we are set free, there are no restraints whatsoever. Nothing restrains us morally. I can do whatever I please in order to please me. Because it's all going to be forgiven anyway. Well, this is an incredible error, and Paul deals with it here in short form. Look what he says. You were called to freedom, verse 13. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In fact, uh, the verbs in the sec that second place, only do not use, that verb is not actually there. He's just clarifying what kind of freedom he talks about. So more literally it would be, you have been called to freedom, brothers, not freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So he's defining what he means by freedom. We have not been given the opportunity for the flesh. The opportunity there is kind of like a base of operations. If you imagine a military headquarters where battalions are sent out on various missions and they come back, Paul is saying that you have not been set free to go out on missions for the flesh. You know, a mission of indulgence here and a mission of uh, uh, self-service there. A mission to seek any desire that happens to strike me over there. Christian freedom is not the launching pad for those kinds of missions. And in fact, he helps us to see what it looks like if we take the opportunity for the flesh. First, I want to jump down just a bit to verse 19. Look at verse 19. So don't take an opportunity for the flesh. Well, what would opportunity, what would that look like? If I took opportunities for the flesh, what would that look like, Paul? Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love that last phrase. And things like these. Paul was not, because you know somebody in, over in the legalism camp, right? They're making a list. They're like, if I can just avoid this and that and that and that and that, I'm good to go. He says, and things like these to say, you get the idea. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Because all of those things in one way or another serve you. 
pursuing any of those opportunities of the flesh, in the end, serve you. Idolatry puts you in charge of the God rather than the God in charge of you. Sorcery gives you a great sense of power. Sexual immorality satisfies physical desires. Enmity, we've already looked at James 4. Enmity is about me wanting what I want and I'm going to hate everybody around unless they do exactly what I want. Y'all get the idea. It may look like any of those things, which may happen, quite frankly, outside the church building, outside the church family. But one of the things that may happen inside the church family is actually up in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. These verbs, bite and devour, are vicious. They are aggressive. They are brutal. Have you ever watched those, uh, those Discovery Channel shows where the predator like hunts down, like animals are literally tearing each other apart? That is what these verbs mean. Opportunity for the flesh will have you tearing apart other people. You will bite and devour one another. That is what the church becomes. The church becomes a place where we go to rip apart other people and pick up where we left off in fighting and do all of that. And we only pause for the 60, 90 minutes that we're singing songs, that we are uh, hearing the word preached, that we're saying amen, and as soon as the last amen goes, we start looking sideways at other people. And we're going to start biting and devouring as soon as we hit the foyer because we shouldn't do it in here. Reminds one of James 3, doesn't it? Blessing and cursing are coming out of the same mouth. These things cannot be. They should not be. Great Road, we cannot be. We cannot be. Not we should not be. Not it wouldn't be best. We must not be a church that bites and devours one another. It should not look like a Discovery Channel special in here. Not publicly and not privately. We must be the ones when there are problems to handle problems biblically. We must be ones who tend to lean toward just giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. That when wrong things occur, we're going to talk about them to that person and not to someone else. We cannot bite and devour one another. To put it more directly, don't bite and devour one another. I say it, and I must hear it as well. Don't do it. Using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh means serving yourself. I mean, after all, whose will are you doing if you use it for the flesh? Yours. Whose turf are you defending when you bite and devour? 
Yours. Whose desires are you satisfying? Yours. This is the way of the flesh, but that's not what freedom is for. That's not why Christ died. That's not what following Jesus looks like. So we get on to the positive. We know what freedom's not for, but what is it for? Christ sets us free, lastly, to serve one another. To serve one another. Notice that, look, there's this incredible, you just, you, you have to notice little things when you're reading. Little things like conjunctions are so very helpful when you're reading the Bible. This is part of the reason why I write by hand the text that I'm preaching each week, because it slows me down to pay attention to every single word. Look in the middle of verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What's the next word? But. It is a conjunction of contrast. Instead of taking opportunity for the flesh, serve one another. That's the contrast. Don't serve yourself. Serve one another. And the verb is strong. It doesn't just mean, hey, you know what? Occasionally, when it kind of strikes you, do something good for somebody else. That's not what it means. If the mood hits you and you've got the time and it's not inconvenient, do something that benefits another person. That is not what this verb means. In fact, you have the, there's one other place in the New Testament when this verb is used in this form and it is over in Colossians chapter 3. When Paul is talking about uh, slaves and their, their, uh, their attitude toward their masters, he finishes with this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's the word. It is active. It is ongoing. I'm doing it. But what does it mean? He's talking to slaves. Slaves are serving. They have been enslaved for some reason. But what he's saying is, as you serve whatever master it is, you are actually enslaving yourself to Jesus. You continually enslave yourself to Jesus. Now, when you take that idea, yeah, 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 you're enslaved by them, actually, just keep enslaving yourself to Jesus. And you'll be the best slave that there is for that master. When you take that idea and you bring it back here, the, the, Paul isn't saying here, serve Jesus by serving one another. Enslave yourself to Jesus by doing good things for one another. He uses the same word to talk about one anothering. He says, enslave yourself to one another. Put yourself in the bonded service of all of the other Christians around you, particularly in your local congregation. You see, we have been given freedom from the law, from sin, from the curse, but not from one another. Not from one another. No, we're to use this freedom to enslave ourselves to one another. Bind yourself to one another so that their best interest is your best interest. Do you know in that system of slavery, do you know what was in the best interest of the slave? 
the best interest of the slave was to do what was in the best interest of the master. Right? That's how you got along. That's how you did well. And he's saying, this is what actually service looks like. Here's what's in your best interest and my best interest. To do what's in the interest of others. To look out for the interests of others and not only our own. Philippians 2. In your mind, look at everyone. You'd say, well, I'm an American. I'm free. I'm not a slave to anybody. Well, if you belong, well, yes, you are, first of all. You're a slave to something. Sin. But when you've been set free, you are now free to do what is actually best for you, actually glorifies God, actually does good, and that is to enslave yourself to others. So look at everyone around you. Read through your membership role this week and see these are the people I am meant to serve. These aren't just the people I'm meant to tolerate. These aren't just the people I'm meant to sit in the same room with each Sunday. These are not even the same people I'm just to, you know, make decisions with for the church. Serve him. Serve her. And don't do it while gritting your teeth. I'm doing this to serve you, you know. Don't do it with reluctance. Like, I'd rather be doing anything else in the entire world except serving you right now, but because I'm a Christian, I am serving you. Don't do that. It's interesting that Paul throws in a little modifier to help us out. Through love, serve one another. Through love. And then he clarifies the whole law, verse 14, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. According to Jesus, in Matthew 22, the first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now beware of that command, everyone. Beware of it, because in this self-loving, self-esteeming culture, you will be told that you cannot obey that command unless you learn how to love yourself. Jesus, the as-yourself part of that sentence is not a command. It's an assumption. Jesus assumes that we already love ourselves. We already look out for our best interests. We already have concerns for our well-being. And what He's saying is the way you naturally look at you, look at others. The way you would naturally do for you, do for others. You know, if you lost your job tomorrow, you would long for and pray for God's provision for a new job. Well, friend, you should long for and pray for the one who just lost their job yesterday. That should be as concerning to you as if you lost your job. That's what he's saying. You would rejoice if you were in financial hardship and money was given to help pay medical bills. You should 
seek to cause others who suffer to rejoice by giving. You see how this is working? As yourself. Students, you would want to you would want help studying in a class where you struggle. Help others who are struggling in your class. Imagine that your aging parents lived in another town so far that you could not get there on any kind of regular basis. Wouldn't you be relieved and thankful if someone there was checking on them, helping make sure they got groceries, playing chess with them, spending time with them, loving them, caring them? Wouldn't you love that if you couldn't get to your parents? Well, look around, friends. Let's say you're single and you're in a new city you're, or you're a couple with small children. You move to a new city and because the job's new, you can't just leave and go home for Thanksgiving or you can't just leave and go home for Christmas. And so you're going to spend this Christmas in a new city you don't know. Wouldn't, wouldn't, you just, wouldn't it be so heartwarming and wouldn't you just be so thankful if someone came up to you after church and said, hey, you're not going home? You have a place at our table. Just come on over. Spend Christmas with us. Some of us so idolize our Christmas traditions that that would never happen. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't idolize traditions. They're wonderful things, but don't idolize them. They're good blessings. They're terrible gods. Love your neighbor as yourself. A warm meal brought to your home when you're walking through a particularly rough time is a great blessing because you don't have to think about dinner. Just do that for others. Just find any, any way that you would want to see your own needs taken care of and care for the needs of others. Let's be that kind of church. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that great to grow as that kind of church? The kind of church like what Luke records in Acts chapter 4, he says, there was not a needy person among them. That's how well they took care of each other. That's how well they served one another in love. To be able to stand, wouldn't this be incredible, to stand in a room like this and say, okay, by show of hands, who has a need that needs to be met? And nobody raises their hand because it's all been done. Now, listen. Through love, serving one another is not a team that you sign up for, okay? It's not an office you hold. It's not a position that you're granted. It's not, uh, it's not any of those things. It's actually a mindset. It is a lifestyle. You actually have to know people. If you come in and out of this room and completely avoid knowing anyone other than this very tiny nucleus of people, never interacting with anybody else, you will never see the opportunities that await for you to serve one another. You will never know everyone in this room or everyone in your church family equally well. Never. You will never do that. But you can know enough to be able to, through love, serve one another. It means we have to listen to one another. 
We have to care about one another's, what one another says. We have to ask if we can be of help, not wait to be asked. And if you're going to ask somebody, can I just give you one little practical tool to hang on to? Try to avoid saying this phrase, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. That's a wonderful thing. It expresses a desire to be helpful. But especially if somebody on the other side of that's in the weeds of life, right? They're just buried under everything. They are not going to be able to think clearly about what they need at that moment. So just ask something more specific. Can I watch your kids for an evening so you can take care of whatever? Can I mow your yard? Can I drive you to the doctor? Can I help you clean your house? Can I help you write a budget? You see the difference? It's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. And friends, it's not some kind of next-level Christianity, right? Like there's all the regular Christians, and then there's the people who serve. Like they're the special class, right? That's next-level Christianity there. No, 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 that's baseline Christianity. Let me show you how I think I know that. Start at verse 13. Here we go. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Keep reading. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Isn't that interesting? Notice the two contrasts that Paul is drawing right here next to each other. You can either take opportunity for the flesh, or you can serve one another. You can gratify the desires of the flesh, or what? You can walk in the Spirit. Did you know that through love, serving one another is one of the ways that you walk in the Spirit? Did you know that you remember what's the first bit of the fruit of the Spirit that's going to come along here in a few verses? Love. Love is. It's not a special class. It's for every... If you have the Spirit of God, not only are you called, you are able to lovingly serve others. Dear Christian, you were called to freedom. You have been set free by Jesus from the law, from sin, from the curse. Use that freedom to enslave yourself to others. Think about it this way. What is God's great purpose in our lives as Christians? To make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what did Jesus do? He loved us. He emptied Himself, according to Philippians 2, and He took the form of a servant to glorify God and do good for us that we could never do for ourselves. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. So know this, every time you deny yourself to serve others, every time you enslave yourself to others, every time you say, Lord, not my will right now, but yours be done, I'm going to serve the other, 
you follow in Christ's steps, you exalt Jesus, you glorify Jesus, you put Jesus on display in your life. Christian, isn't that what you want? Don't you want Jesus on display in your life, not for your sake, but for the sake of those around you so that others can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven? Then use your freedom wisely. Through love, serve one another. Let's pray. Oh God, how it is our tendency to serve ourselves in so many situations. We are thankful that though we were once under the law and under sin and under a curse, that you have set us free by the blood of Jesus Christ, that the chains have been broken, and that we now have freedom, freedom to do what we were created to do and glorify you, freedom to be like Jesus and serve as he did, freedom from all that would drag us to hell. Lord, we pray that you will give us grace to use that freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. Make us a congregation where it could be said there was not a needy person among them for the glory of Jesus Christ who came to serve. We pray and ask all these things, and we do it in His name. Amen.